I remember Sam's opening line for IBCBI's um, opening sermon this year, 2021. I remember this because the message was from Revelation chapter 2021. And it just so happened that was how Emily and I plan our Bible in one year for this year. Um, I've just finished Jeremiah and seeing how it's already the end of September. Yes, I am behind. And yes, Re Revelation 20 ends in judgment. I mean, it's even in my ESV's subtitle. But if the Bible only ended there in verses 11 to 15, I would think and venture that the initial reaction of many of us hearing the sermon today would feel far worse than how I have been feeling about my Bible in one year's KPI. For you see, as much as judgment it is an outcome, it is but one outcome. Far too often, people agonize about their past circumstances resulting in their present-day position, yet far too few people attribute today's decision with a logically unfathomable future eternally with Christ. In like manner, our decision today need not end in judgment. The Bible does not, and neither should we. The Bible does, however, end in the same decree as is in the beginning. At the inception of creation, God saw that all that he had created was good. God looked at man and saw that it was good. If my laptop had a functioning camera and you could see me right now, you would not say that I was good, very or otherwise. But because this is creation, um, philosophers of old have asked the question, why do we exist? This is the same hypothetical inquisitiveness demonstrated by the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't care which way Jesus answered. All that concerned them was how quickly the Herodians would incriminate Christ with Rome or how quickly the people would riot and stone him to death. Philosophy poses this question as a one-two combo because they follow up with what is the purpose of our existence? At best, these questions reveal their blind spot, but in a worst-case scenario that is not entirely unfathomable, these questions are an insidious instrument designed to incline our intuition inwardly, inward as in away from God toward ourselves. So I will say today, we exist because God created us into existence. A consistent examination of the Bible would follow that God decrees his purpose for our existence. Since this is being uploaded to the internet, allow me to address the first of two um, disagreeing perspectives. Proponents of the either an impotent or maleficent God would claim that they claim that it is unfortunate that that is their personal human perspective instead of a holy and righteous God-centered perspective. 
These proponents surmise that our worship creates, constructs, or compounds on God's glory. However, we as Christians know that we do not make God glorious. Our worship, however, does reveal, recognize, and rightfully return to God that which he has already mercifully blessed us with. Worship is what happens when creation reflects God's glory. And the second one would be that slithering tongue that says, Stop. We are no longer naive in Eden. We have the Holy Spirit in us. This is where it says that God created us to worship Him for His glory. Since there is scarcely a topic that is as divisive as procedure, naturally, we are here to examine the procedure of worship. We have our reason for worship, which is God himself. We have our outcome of worship, which is for his glory. But if we were to change the words of procedure, it's coming up with what is central to worship is almost as easily derailable. After all, can examples of true worship even exist outside of the do this and the do not do this list of commandments? There are plenty. I did not include them. But then the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance that song, that song that says God holds our future. We don't know what tomorrow holds. When we look at who is central to our worship, what the future holds matters very little because we believe in the one who holds our future. True worship will change a deceived woman, deceived by a serpent, into a wife that praises God. The worship of Abram changed him from a husband who listened to not God, to a father who listens to God. The worship of Jacob changed him from a son relying on the plans of his mother to a patriarch relying on the plans of God. The worship of Joseph changed him from a hated and enviable sibling into a comforting and kind provider. The worship of Rahab changed that house of harlotry into a house of refuge. Likewise, the worship of Gideon enabled a person who spoke of themselves in a servile clansman way to speak in a potential ruler position, but humbly saying, the Lord shall rule over you. The worship of Jephthah transformed him from a child with no inheritance to a judge of Israel. The worship of the widow of Zarephath changed her from a catastrophizing fatalist 
into a woman that proclaims that the word of the Lord is truth. And it is this worship, the true worship of God, that enabled Stephen, while being stoned in the outcast of a city, to be able to gaze into heaven, seeing the glory of God. This true worship is what enables Paul to proclaim in utmost sincerity that he is the worst of sinners, even after being a consenting persecutor. And if God affirms all these examples as worship that glorifies him, we would be amiss to rigidly compartmentalize God-centered, God-glorifying worship according to our own preferences. Growing up, I was one of those children with a what-would-Jesus-do silicon bracelet. My conundrum began when a churchgoer started selling juice boxes from their car boot after Sunday service. Do I buy it from them or express my concerns to an elder about this situation resembling a very vivid Sunday school lesson? Or do I even reenact John 2.15 for the 20th century? That day marked the beginning of a long journey struggling with the second part of Jesus' answer in Matthew 22. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love them as ourselves, to consider their needs above our own, to respond to their struggles with compassion. In short, to serve and serve with other believers. Given the many possibilities of serving with other believers, what better way to test us in a manner that produces patience that is other than corporate worship? If true worship reveals who we give glory to, then corporate worship reveals the desire of our hearts to each other because corporate worship reveals our hearts, there comes a myriad of hurt. We know that worship is for God's glory and the corporate part of it is to serve with a body of believers. And this myriad of hurt that comes with serving with a body of believers is because we are all sinful. We will discover that we are no different from each other in our sin. It may take a different form, but to God it is sin and sin nonetheless. Such a relationship comprising sinners, if we are not being sinned against, we would most likely be the one doing the sinning. And unless you're the biblical example of Matthew 7.3, you will soon realize that hurt and disappointment are not the terminal cessation of relationships. 
God uses that same hurt to redirect your focus to himself. You begin to view altercations and miscommunications as opportunities to practice what the Bible has taught you. You'll discover that shutting yourself away is not an option because corporate worship is fundamentally relational. That moment when you find yourself being cold to your spouse or a parent who finds their children alienating them from their lives. When you as a child find your parents unable to discuss topics that they find painful. When you discover that you are dreading that absolutely necessary conversation. When you find yourself in a predicament, being a tad cynical, discouraged or exhausted after serving in ministry. When those around you not only reject the gospel, but they persecute you, instead of giving in to all these overwhelming desires to run away, God is calling you to look at your relationship with renewed vision. Look at the hurt through the lens of God's grace, the grace that enables you to be the instrument of grace, that light on the hill, that salt, that word of encouragement, that touch that is kind, your time that is precious, to be able to lend a listening ear to those who need to speak. You are his instrument of grace through worship, not just in the lives of those that hurt you, but in your private life as well. Speaking about private lives, Jesus' private life epitomizes a man after God's own heart, a man who speaks face-to-face with God like a friend. We are esteemed with the highest privilege because the Bible prioritizes this insight of our Lord and Savior's private worship. Remember that John um, 2.15 joke? In the parallel verse in Mark, he wasn't just doing that out of spite. He calls his house a house of prayer and he demonstrates his prayer in Luke 22.44, which we will later see. Private worship is more than just prayer because we know that Jesus fulfilled scripture. He is here with us. Unfortunately, the same way that the Jews did not understand what he meant when he said, destroy this temple, the Jews did not understand that his house is a house of prayer. Like the Jews, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman didn't understand what worship was. She thought it was anchored to a place 
instead of a person. But Christ tells us that true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks such people to worship him. Looking at this verse, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We know where our focus is meant to be on God. We see that our spirits denotes our attitude. The truth of our worship is based on the foundation of the Bible. We know that the Bible is true. It is the very living word of God that breathes life. For our attitude, Christ demonstrated it when he prayed fervently because unlike the misunderstanding of the temple or the mount of worship, we will not misunderstand the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We know that the mantle of priesthood is now upon us. Our sacrifices are ourselves. We are called to present as living sacrifices. Spiritual worship tells us that all praising must be done in exaltation. We are happy to give up our selfish nature to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to adopt the holy nature of God himself. Our attitudes for worship must be constant. We are giving thanks always. It must be continuous in all circumstances, ups, downs, lefts, rights. Every day we grow in grace and thanksgiving. Every day we honor God in all. Do you look forward to worshiping God? Do you have the right heart? I pray this for myself. We know that God searches the hearts of men. We see earlier that corporate worship serving with others, reveals to us not just the sin in others, but the sin in ourselves. This sin dissatisfies us. We will constantly be averting fear and seeking pleasure if you were to believe a psychologist. But there is no need to avert fear. We can bring our fear to God, lay it at his feet, plead with him, accept his grace for us. And in so doing, receive the renewing of our hearts, spirit and mind by his Holy Spirit. Yes, Revelation 22.9 is an imperative command. Yet worship God comprises more than just an instruction. More than this, imperative command 
worship God carries with it all the future promises, present hope, and fulfilled mercies that only God can give you. Far be it from me to warn those more experienced than I in years about the folly of knowledge without action. So I will end with a question followed by a statement before concluding in prayer. The opportunity to reject often looks indistinguishable from the opportunity to accept. God is offering you this opportunity to worship him and him alone through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, right here and right now. How will you respond? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us near to you as we draw near to you with our mouths. We honor you with our lips. Heavenly Father, we plead with you to keep our hearts circumcised to yours. We do not want to worship in vain. We do not want to be ignorant in our worship. Heavenly Father, help us know and consider that you are the object and focus of our worship. At your altar will we sacrifice ourselves as living sacrifices. We will not live the week only to come on a Sunday for worship, but every second of every day of the week will be our worship to you. We know who we worship. You are the God of heaven and earth. In our conclusion, we will pray in the spirit. We will pray with understanding. We will pray according to the will of God. So help us each day grow in gratitude. Help us seek to honor you in all that we do, for we will greatly anticipate and look forward to all our times of worship. And with our renewed hearts by the Holy Spirit, we bring it to you, we return it to you, we reflect you. By the holy matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.